And so when these things go around, we do invite everyone who believes to participate. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask Linton to say a prayer for the bread. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you that we can stop and just consider that we who are sinners and you who are holy and righteous, that we as sinners don't deserve, as we heard this morning, any of your grace, any of your favour towards us. And yet, Lord, you came down to earth. You died on that cross. You broke your body. You shed your blood for us. You love us so much that you wanted us to be to understand that we needed you to come down, that we needed to know that we were sinners and needed you to rescue us, and that is what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to eternity with you because what you have done for us, the broken body, the broken bread, the bread here that we take, which resembles that broken body, reminds us of it. We thank you, Lord. Amen. And so as the bread comes around, we invite everyone who believes in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour to take it and to eat it and to remember his body broken or given for us.
wonder if there are any of the younger people in the church that can tell me what the grape juice that we're going to share represents. I think William, he had his hand up first. The, the wine, yeah, we, we use grape juice instead of wine, don't we? But what does that wine represent? Oh, I think firsthand that time was Zachariah. Jesus' blood, that's right. That's what we remember when we drink this cup. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I'll ask Ed to say a prayer for the cup. Dear Lord, thank you for this cup that we take to remember and celebrate what you have done for us. Lord, nothing we could do to save, could save ourselves. It was only you. It was all about you, Jesus. It was you that had to shed this blood for our sins. And we thank you for this. In your name, Amen. So again, we invite everyone who believes in Jesus to take the cup as it comes around and to drink, to remember his blood shed for us. So we proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes again. Amen. Well, I might invite everyone to uh, just find your way back to your seats for now. And it'll be good to be able to continue those conversations after the service over a cup of tea or coffee or whatever it might be. Before we get into God's Word this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have in our hands able to be read your Word for us. Your revelation of who you are, of the way the world really is, of our desperate need for a saviour and of the saviour that we find in Jesus Christ. We pray that as we hear from your word, we might hear you speaking to us. We pray that by your spirit, you might plant your word deep in us, that you might shape us by your word to be the people that you call us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through Paul's first letter, or at least the first letter out of the ones that we still have, uh, to the church in Corinth. Uh, Been reading through 1 Corinthians and about all of the disunity in the church, about all of the arguments, about all of the the ways that they'd misunderstood aspects of the gospel. And we're picking up uh, where we left off, for those who want to read along in your own Bibles, from chapter 11, starting at verse 2. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, and nor do the churches of God. 
sure is a good thing I got my hair cut a couple of weeks ago. I think it's fair to say today's passage is one that it can be hard to know exactly what to do with. If you are reading along in your Bibles at home, you are doing your home reading through 1 Corinthians, you might get to this passage and be like, what on earth is all this about? What does any of this mean? Some people might like to just you know, rip this section out of our Bibles entirely. Others might read that and start to panic like, we've always had you know, women up the front of our church and they don't have to have a covering on their head or maybe there's a woman in the church who has short hair and should they be, uh, you know, have they disgraced the church somehow? by praying or leading the church in some way with their short hair. The thing is, if you follow Jesus, then one non-negotiable of following Jesus is that every part of this book is God's word to us. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And so if we want to keep... 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. If we want to keep all of the things about unity that we've read from the first part of 1 Corinthians, then we need to trust that this passage has value for us as well. We'll, we'll, As I go through, I'm sort of going to show you how we tackle a passage like this to understand what it says to us today. But we do need to have our starting point be that we trust God that this is in the Bible for a reason. That it's there for us for a reason. And yet, we don't make women wear a, a shawl or something before they come up the front of this church. We don't insist that men have short hair and that women have long hair. Maybe you read this and you start feeling like guilty. Maybe we should. The question is, how do we apply and understand 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16 today? And when it comes to understanding a passage like this, I think the first part of applying it is understanding what is the principle of the passage, what's sort of like the key core teaching And what is application? What is Paul taking from that teaching and say, and therefore this is how you should live? And then we have the questions, does does Paul's application still apply today? As well as the question of, does the broader principle still apply today? So when we read through a passage like this, what is the main principle? What's what's the, the key idea that then Paul is drawing his application from. Well, the principle is the first thing he states to them after saying about how he's pleased that they're keeping the traditions that he's given them. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. That's Paul's principle in this passage. And then Paul's application of that was all of that stuff about praying with your head covered or uncovered or with long hair or with short hair. All of that was Paul applying 
that initial principle. So as I said, we have to ask, does that application still apply to us today? And it's also, we need to wrestle with, does that principle still apply to us today? So we'll start with Paul's application, headscarves and long hair. Men should have their hair un- head uncovered, or uh, there is some ambiguity in this. That's why I've said headscarves and long hair. That the language could be talking about either like some kind of hat or head covering, but it could also be talking about long hair as the head covering. Um, but regardless, as, as we'll hopefully see, the way that we apply that will be exactly the same anyway. So men should have their head uncovered and have short hair. And women should have the opposite. Their hair should be long and, that or, and or they should have their hair covered. Particularly in the context Paul is talking about of when they're worshipping in the church. And we see that context in verse uh, 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. And verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. Uh, he's talking about particularly about things that they're doing together as part of their church worship. So what are Paul's reasons for making that the application? And do those things still hold true? The first reason he gives is that doing this dishonours your head. Uh, The man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And that's having just come after what he's talked about, like the head of man is Christ. It seems likely Paul is not saying he's he's dishonouring his own literal head, but that he is dishonouring Christ. But why does a man having long hair or a head cover dishonour Christ? Why does a woman having her head uncovered dishonour man or dishonour Christ? Well, Paul goes on to say that the disgrace for a woman to have her hair uncovered is, is, is the same as if her head was shaved completely or if her hair was cut, cut off. And this is where we realise, where you might realise as you're reading through this, that we're dealing with something that's very different, received very differently in the culture that Paul is speaking to than the culture that we live in today. I remember, um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, the BBC Robin Hood TV show, but there's there's an episode in that... um, I, I quite enjoyed at least the first two seasons of it. But there's an episode in that where Maid Marian gets in trouble for repeatedly speaking out against the Sheriff of Nottingham. And her punishment is like before the whole town of Nottingham, up, up on the, you know, the sort of raised platform, her head is shaved or like her hair is cut really short. And this was a great humiliation. This was, you know, a great. Um, a terrible thing to have happen. These days, it's not that uncommon for a woman to have short hair or to have her head uncovered. These days, there's not that intrinsic feeling that there is that immediate disgrace or that immediate problem with it. Now, there's some dispute about what exactly was was being communicated by men with long hair or women with short hair and the head coverings. Um, There were some Greek and Roman cults where 
Uh, all of the people that were part of it would dress as androgynously as possible, sort of obliterating all of the, the visual differences between men and women. And that might have been what Paul is speaking against. Um, there's some that have suggested that in those times, long hair in men was, uh, was particularly associated with homosexuality and uh, likewise with short hair in women. And Paul is sort of wanting to avoid giving off that impression. But there is that sense as we read through this that a woman having her hair uncovered or, um, or having short hair or a man having his head covered or having long hair meant something different, meant more in that culture than it does today. But those aren't the only reasons Paul gives. Paul also says, uh, you know, appeals to the creation that, that Man is the image and the glory of God and that woman is the glory of man. Notice he doesn't say the image and the glory of man. Woman is the image of God, just as man is the image of God. And, well, if he's, you know, the creation order, the way that God created things, that is something that hasn't changed. But how exactly that applies to now, given the difference in culture, might be something that we have to uh, look at. And he finishes this section by saying, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So let's do that. Let's judge for ourselves. Is, there, is it improper? Is there some problem with propriety with a woman praying with her head uncovered? I don't think the, there's an immediately obvious yes answer in our culture as there was in this one. And then he says to them, and, and from nature, uh, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? Why does nature teach us that women should have longer hair than men? It, it might just be that you know, men have the gene to go bald much more likely than women. Um, that might be the nature that he's appealing to. But it's worth remembering even though it sounds like a very strong, like certain statement that uh, if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. There was a thing called the Nazarite vow in Jewish culture where men would not get their hair cut as a part of their vow to God. And the most famous example of that is, of course, Samson, who had very long hair. So it doesn't necessarily apply, uh, come across that what Paul is saying here applies across all cultures and in all times. I don't think hair co head coverings or hair lengths communicate the same thing today that they did in Paul's day and in the day of the Corinthians. So we don't apply this passage in the same way that Paul has. But that brings us to the second question. Does Paul's principle still apply? Is man the head of the church and the house? Just as the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now it is true that the word head can have the, the, the association like 
the, the meaning of like the source of something in the same way that the head of the river is the source of the river and that man is the head of woman in the sense that he came first and woman came from man. But with what Paul says, uh, where are we? In, in verse 8, about woman, oh, verse 7, from woman being the glory of man, man did not come from woman but woman from man, Neither was man created for woman, but woman from man. It doesn't seem like, at least in Paul's thought, that we can completely separate the idea of being the head with some sense of authority, some, some level of authority. And Paul states this thing about Christ being the head of man, man being the head of the woman, and God being the head of Christ as a fact, not as an argument that he needs to defend, but that is just the way things are. And as I said, the basis seems to be in verse 7 to 9, in creation order, in God's will in creation, that he made man first, and then from man he made woman. And he made woman to complement man, to, you know, to not be exactly the same as man, but to... You know, the two of them together to be a whole. The basis that Paul makes for this is not based in cultural norms, in what was happening in those days and their expectations. And the basis is not even in, uh, in the fall and the consequence of sin. Um, we know, of course, after they sinned, that part of God's uh, curse on Eve was about imbalanced gender relations with her husband that the husband would rule over her. Now this is a point where if we take God's word seriously, we have to acknowledge that this means something. Whatever we take these statements to mean about Christ being the head of man, about man being the head of the woman, and about Christ, uh, God being the head of Christ, it can't mean nothing, or else there was no reason for God to put it in his word to us. Now, I truly believe that it does mean that men are called to be the head of the house and of the church. And that's not a popular position in our world today. Uh, and in, you know, in terms of the egalitarianism that I think we all have, that, that we are fundamentally equal in the eyes of God. That in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. That we are all equal in the eyes of God. And yet that was written by the same man who's just written this. And we need to understand the two together. When, I, when you say that the man is the head of the woman, that the husband is the head of the household, people will often hear you to be claiming a whole lot of things which is not what the Bible is saying or not what the Bible is claiming. It's not freedom to be a tyrant and to be waited upon by a lesser, inferior servant. That is not at all what is in view here. Because, just as he said man is the head of the woman, he also said God is the head of Christ, 
Would we dare say Christ is inferior to the Father? Would we dare say Christ is just a servant and follows all of the Father's whims? Or are they equal but having different roles within the Godhead? Because they do have different roles. The Father did not die on the cross for us. The Son did. We don't ever read of the Father submitting to the Son, but we do read of the Son submitting to the Father. And yet we believe truly that they are fundamentally equal. And the other thing that we need to remember is that if God has given men any position of leadership within the church and within the home, what does Christian leadership look like? That he who is first among you must be the servant of all. So the picture of headship that Bible gives us is not one of you know, a superior and an inferior. But it's a picture of mutual service towards one another, recognising some difference in roles, just as there's a difference in roles between Christ and the Father, but no difference in value. And as we look at the world, you can't tell me that there aren't homes, that the homes and the world around us doesn't need more men that are taking responsibility in their homes and showing servant leadership in their homes. And so again, this is not about enforcing 1950s gender roles. I'm sorry, men, but you can do the dishes sometimes. Um, that's okay. This is not about those sort of uh, you know, expectations and cultural things. And one of the key things to notice in this passage that we might miss in amongst all the controversial stuff about the the, the dynamics of men and women is that women can prophesy and pray in the church. And it's easy to miss how extraordinary that was in the first century AD. In the synagogue in this time, you needed to have ten men to be able to have a synagogue uh, in a town, ten Jewish men to make a synagogue. Women didn't count. You could have you know, three men and seven women. That wasn't enough. You needed ten men. And the men and the women were segregated and they had no involvement in the leadership in the, in the, at the front of the synagogue. And Paul is describing something completely different here in the church where women have a great freedom to have a very important role in the life of the church, to be leading the church. Uh, can prophesy and pray. And, and this prophesying is not all necessarily about uh, you know, pr- telling what's going to happen in the future. Prophesying is about proclaiming the covenant that God has given to us. There are a lot of people, myself included, that see preaching, like I'm doing right now, being more under the banner of what is called prophesying in the New Testament where we'll see in in a couple of chapters in verse 14, and I might go into that a bit more fully then, which is why this church has had the position that we can have women guests preach or lay preach up the front of this church 
coming under the authority of the leadership of the church, the eldership of the church, which we believe that it's right in terms of this passage to be men. Now, I'm very happy to discuss that position of mine with anybody that wants to discuss why I take these verses in that way. But the one thing I will say is the Bible has to be the basis for where we stand and for where we, what we believe in this area. But with all of that then, and there was <laughs> there's quite a lot of tricky stuff to deal with there, that leads us to the final key question of how we actually make this apply to our lives today, how we come to a passage like this. First we've looked and we've split it up, we understood what was the principle and what was the application, and we think the application is different today because of our different culture, but the principle has stayed the same. But the final key question we should ask of any passage in the Bible, what does this have to do with the gospel? What does this have to do with Jesus? All of us, male and female, were created in the image of God. And all of us, male and female, tarnished that image by choosing to reject God and go our own way. We turned our back on our Creator. We corrupted ourselves and our world through sin. We separated ourselves from God by that sin so that there was no way that we could save ourselves, no way that we could be good enough to undo the separation we had made. Through our sin, we'd brought about death in this world and the curses of sin, including the ones we talked about earlier on Adam and on Eve. And then Jesus came, perfectly the image of God. And he paid the price for our sins. He made us a new creation so that everyone who believes in Jesus is slowly being restored into that image of God. Jesus broke the curse of sin because of what he's done. He's, as Paul said, uh, he's broken down the dividing wall between us. Now there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, all are equal before him. And so in a way, as Paul writes these verses, he's addressing a problem that was created by the gospel. The curse of sin is broken and now women can do so much more in the church than what was ever possible in the synagogue. But Paul is warning us that the no male or female thing can be taken too far. And if it's taken too far, it can obliterate the beauty of what God has made, the diversity of what God has made. That he didn't just make man and woman to be carbon copies of one another, but that he made us differently, beautifully differently. Complementary not interchangeable. And so Paul calls us to enjoy the freedom of the gospel, but to celebrate that difference that God has made. To say that women don't have to become men and dress like men and be like men 
to have an important voice and a place in the church, but they, you can worship God as women that love God, and men can worship God as men that love God. Paul calls us to celebrate the diversity of how we're made. And to celebrate that, we need one another. We need that difference. And we need to follow what God has called us to, each of us specifically, each of us differently, that picture of mutual service that I said, that I talked about before, where men and women have different roles in the home and in the church. But it's not a question of one being better or you know, superior or inferior. But that the men, you know, particularly the way that it talks about in the home, men uh, lead the home with servant leadership. That we are the servant of all. Meanwhile, the wives submit to their husbands out of reverence of Christ. It's that picture of beautiful mutual service and love for one another. Paul calls us to follow that pattern so that we can glorify Christ, the head of our church, the one who showed us what servant leadership was, the one who submitted himself to the will of the Father, the one who has made us sons and daughters loved by God. Let's pray. Father, when we come to the passages in your word that can be hard to understand, we pray that you will help us to just come to them trusting that they do have value for us, that you do speak through them to us. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to apply your word to our hearts and live to glorify you. We thank you for what you've done through Jesus, making us your people, tearing down the barriers between people, showing us and helping us to see that we're all equal in your sight. Help us to follow the, the example that you have given us, that those who lead, lead with Christ-like servant-heartedness. That those who serve, that they serve with love and with joy. We pray that you might help us to trust in your word. That we might help us, that you might help us to show and to glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.